Hi, everyone. Uh, today at the podcast from Research Reality to Reality, uh, we have extreme pleasure to have Mr. Ashkan, who is our uh, Mr. Uh, Silicon Photonics man. That's right. Glad to be here. So I think our audience would really like to know a little bit more about Silicon Photonics. We already spoke to Ray, but we're hoping you'll get us to the next level of detail, production, adoption, and these kinds of things. Very good. So in one sentence, Silicon Photonics is the field of manipulating and routing light onto the silicon chip. So uh, in the field that we're going to talk about today, in particular, we'll be talking about using silicon photonics for communication. Of course, there's a lot of other applications like sensing and solar cells and other applications like that that could be considered part of silicon photonics. But uh, in my particular work, in my job, day job here, I particularly work on interconnects using silicon photonics. Mm -hmm. So imagine I'm not an engineer. I'm not even technically astute. What does silicon photonics mean? What, what is it? So the field of optical photonics is one of my favorite jokes that I like to make was, you know, they started doing the revolution of America where they had two if by land, one if by sea. They were mm -hmm. using free space optics. So there's light propagating in air. Uh, in silicon photonics, you have a silicon, silicon material that confines and routes and guides the light to, from the sender to the receiver. And they can be on the same physical chip, or they can be in two different endpoints. And that part of being on the same chip is what it makes it silicon, is that right? Potentially. So uh, as long as the routing and the manipulation of light is happening on a silicon chip, by and large, it can be considered silicon photonics. So, so what is the big deal of doing it in silicon as opposed to just outside of the chips? Absolutely. So commercial optics and photonics interconnects have been around for maybe 40 years at this point, and they've always not been in silicon because one of the challenges of silicon is that it cannot make an efficient laser. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a good source in the material. But in order to drive adoption and drop cost and use the infrastructure that traditional CMOS silicon, like processors and things like that, have brought up since the 50s, uh, we try to leverage the infrastructure by doing the optical business end, if you will, in a silicon chip because then we can make it cost effective at large volumes, reliable, mm -hmm. repeatable, all the things that are required. So I heard there's something about this juncture between, you know, chip and outside of chip because there's been, as you pointed out, photonics communication for many years outside of the chip. But in that case, when you cross the chip boundaries, you've been losing some things. And That's right. So what are the benefits of now uh, transparently going from outside the chip and to the chip, et cetera? What, what kind of advantage do you gain from that? As you learn through this conversation, I love analogies. Mm -hmm. So we'll go with the analogy. So in the late 80s, AT&T laid a single optical fiber from London to New York, and that helped with trading. And the need there was at those long distances. So it's mm -hmm. mass transport, essentially. And then we went from intercontinental to between states to between cities and shorter and shorter distances. But it's like changing currency every time you go from one country mm -hmm. to another. You have to pay a little bit of a tax. That tax can come in power. It certainly will come in cost. And for certain applications of high-performance computing and cloud service, it comes with the cost of latency, mm -hmm. which impacts users of how fast your video will load on your phone versus how, how fast some AI workload can finish. 
So what we're trying to do is blur, ideally, those boundaries or just get rid of them uh, to make it look like the EU, where you can just basically move without same currency, same passport. You can just take a train from one country to another and not have to deal with any of those interface challenges. So all the way to UK, then you Brexit. That's right. And then all of a sudden you have one rogue uh, who's like, you know what, I don't like this party anymore. I'm out of here. Okay. <laughs> Is that CPU processing inside or...? We're, or let's stop with analogies there. Yeah, 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 we're trying to be a lot more democratic and try to build a technology that is not linked to who is going to be using it, mm -hmm. right? That, that we'll talk about later in the conversation, I hope, that it feeds into the strategy that we have of the democratization. Um, coming up with boutique, unique solutions mm -hmm. uh, never scales. By definition, it cannot scale because it's a boutique solution. Others have tried that and they've not they're not around much, mm -hmm. or they've been bought, or they've collapsed as a company. So we've chosen kind of an orthogonal way. Okay, let's leave democratization for uh, a little bit uh, later. But before we get to democracies and other uh, political aspects, can you tell me a little bit about the barriers? Because you just said that you're getting much better latencies. Uh, what about power? What about cost in terms of going to silicon photonics? And I also heard that when you have this connection from photonics to previously to the silicon chips, there was a lot of temperature sensitivity. Are you removing these barriers? Okay, so there's a lot of questions yeah. there, so let's, let's unpack each one of those. As we all very well know, the data explosion and all that good stuff, right? But nobody really talks about the corresponding effect in power consumption mm -hmm. in the world today, where something like data centers consume 10 to 11% of the world's power being generated, which is ridiculous because lighting is like 30%. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a lot, right? And uh, a fun fact is every time you go on Facebook or Twitter or something and you like something, that corresponds to about 10 to 50 microwatts of perpetual power increase forever mm -hmm. because that like will be stored and duplicated and it can never go away. And notice I didn't say joules, I said watts. So that's mm -hmm. time. For, so there's that power consumption, then there's the power consumption of um, moving data, right? We, again, as a consumer, you don't think about it. You just take your phone out and show your buddy that video, and you never worry about the power consumption to just do that simple transaction. So uh, a field who does really care about the power consumption is the HPC community, and more and more uh, cloud service providers like Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, etc. The FANG companies, as they're called, right? Uh, because their data centers are now something on the order of five to six times bigger than the biggest HPC clusters. And they're putting them in the North Pole practically because mm -hmm. they can just open the windows and nature will heat it, will cool it for you. Mm -hmm. But it's starting to get to the point where it's actually making a, a, an impact on the ecology of the area because they're heating it up. They're melting things. <laughs> you are heating nature. <laughs> right, so it's not for free. Mm -hmm. So we, we really have to start looking at the power consumption, and in a typical um, system, doesn't matter what it's used for, uh, you'll be spending roughly 20 to 25% of your power budget uh, just on communication alone. Mm -hmm. And as these systems become more dense, meaning more processors, doesn't matter if it's CPU, GPU, neuromorphic, vector, doesn't gets shoved more into the box and there's more memory that gets push, pushed in, you're looking at these individual servers that consume 100 kilowatts, 200 kilowatts pretty easily. Mm -hmm. That's a very dense, hot box. 
and uh, adding on top of that another 50% increase because you have to deal with the power consumption of photonics or your interconnect is simply a non-starter. You cannot build an exascale machine like we're supposed to to fit into the power envelope that it's supposed to without uh, with such high um, power consumption for your interconnect. You'll need a nuclear reactor essentially. So we need a 10x, if not a 20x, reduction in power. Mm -hmm. That power consumption comes from the fact that traditionally there's been this very hard boundary between here's where it's optical and here's where it's electrical. And these chips that are on the board have to drive tens of centimeters of trace to that boundary. So what we're trying to do is nothing ridiculous and, and, and like rocket science, it's pretty common sense to just bring that boundary closer. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like just don't go that far. <laughs> it's like the doctor, it hurts when I do this, but just don't, don't do, do that. It, yeah. right? it's, it's really that easy, but also that, that it's simple, but it's complex in the fact that to do that, you have to change the way the systems are architected, meaning that the way that they're wired and the, the, the way they're manufactured and the, the supply chain that has to be there. So imagine an industry where you've been using two by fours to build houses, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, we're gonna start using one by threes. And all the guys and girls who do your framing are like, well, okay, so now we have to get bigger sheetrock or we got to get different nails. And it just, it triggers a whole nother set of conversations. Everybody agrees that, yes, mm -hmm. using one by threes would be cheaper. We would love to do it. But like the inertia, the pain of, so we're dealing with that barrier as well, right? Everybody understands, yes, gosh, I'd love mm -hmm. to do it. But because there's not a supply chain, there's not a robust enough system of people using the ecosystem, if you will, it's hard. But as HPE, a systems company, we're ideally the best positioned in the world to drive this kind of a change because we sit at a vertex of technology, supply chain, manufacturing, software, and market ownership, to be honest, to drive the vision and, and make it actually happen. Mm -hmm. Because if we can flip a third of the market to do it and they start reaping those benefits, it becomes kind of like keeping up with the Jones. What about this temperature stability that we somehow skipped? Right, so like I said, I, you asked a lot of dense questions, so thank you for reminding me on that. Um, that's never gonna truly go away. Mm -hmm. What you can do is separate the problem. So silicon, which is the thing that is used in all the processors in our wallets and phones and laptops, et cetera, uh, will work out to a very high degree. The thing that doesn't is the material that helps you generate light. And typically what has happened in the photonics world is uh, in the telecommunication space where you have intercontinental metro optical links, those are housed in a very cool, dense box that's mm -hmm. temperature sensitive enough to sit in the rainstorm and have no problems. But as you bring in a microelectronics, you can't do that unless you want to carry a 50 pound laptop, which nobody does, right? So what we're trying to do is remove that temperature sensitive, what is called 3.5 material, which is periodic table, which is the thing that creates the light, and put that in a more thermally non-violent atmosphere. So something that can be much more temperature stable so that the electronics that's getting hot and cold and hot and cold depending on use uh, is, is separate from that. So it's quiet over here and this thing is thermally up and down. So uh, by virtue of integrating everything on chip, we can decide, okay, well, do we put the laser here where it's noisy with temperature or do we put it elsewhere by decoupling it to somewhere that's thermally quiet? With an integrated component-based solution, you cannot do that. 
Well, you can do that, but it becomes too expensive and the market mm -hmm. won't bear it. But one of the other strategies of our integrated silicon photonics is the separation of those kinds of domains into, well, you don't have to do that, so just don't. Mm -hmm. Again, very simple strategy of, it's terrible when I do this, so just don't. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to this democratization. Uh, you touched on, on the production, how you productize it, so how does it change in terms of how it was done before versus now, boutique versus uh, mass market and things like that? Absolutely, so one of the relevant consumer level applications where everybody can feel this is when Apple released the Face ID on their phone, they were using a particular kind of a laser in their phone. The company who generated, who, who sold that laser to them, also sold those lasers to the telecommunication space. Mm -hmm. Because of the literal billions of parts that they were selling for the Apple phone, the price in their telemarketing world dropped by about 3x because this company was all of a sudden generating much more volume than they ever imagined. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a rain it was it was a waterfall for them because they were like, great, we're making tons of money. And another adjacent industry who is completely not a consumer level benefited from that. So the lesson to be taken from there is if you can make something that everybody uses, it generally becomes more available and more cheap, mm -hmm. which is kind of the name of the game. So if I sell one thing for you, the cost that it took me to stand up that solution, I need you to pay me back in three years, please. Mm -hmm. Maximum five. But if it's you and a hundred other people, well then you see a one one hundredth cost of what would have been otherwise. It's it's literally that linear of math. So mm -hmm. Again, as a systems company, because we deal with multiple vendors who sell different kinds of processors, memory, media controllers, et cetera, that all get integrated into our box, mm -hmm. into our products, uh, we're able to offer this optical I.O. technology to whoever needs it at a price point that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. And by being able to introduce it into that market more intelligently, we can make it cost effective for others to use as well. And that means not just our products. Our, vet, our vendor partner products who we integrate back into our systems. And if it even means, quote, arming our competitors, in some sense we all win because it has to be a healthy ecosystem. You cannot just have one, I mean, monopolies are never good, yeah. right? So if there's competition, if there's capitalism, which will fundamentally drop the price on things, that's the kind of healthy competition that technology needs to survive. And it directly maps also on the adoption because yeah. the more and cheaper you produce, more people use it. You know, I, I, I like to be a student of history and when you look back at a company that we bought in the early 2000s and how Compaq did it uh, in the 90s, mm -hmm. it, was, it was exactly that. It was the traditional, we're going to keep it within our house IBM versus Compaq trying to, now they were able to get the license to open source the boot and then mm -hmm. that whole angle, but further on their strategy was no, no, we need to make it something that everybody can use, doesn't matter who it is, because it becomes a de facto standard, mm -hmm. right? And you and I also discussed in terms of this democratization that you are willing to come up with the packages and small components you can put more easily together so that you can customize solution. Yeah, so that strategy feeds into what we have been talking about as a company and with Antonio, our CEO, talking about delivering, quote, right-sized solutions for customers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that means different things to different customers in different markets, but in this particular context, it means buying an interconnect with the correct amount of bandwidth and cost that's not under-provisioned or over-provisioned. So it's like, you know, the, the three little bears kind of a, analogy there where it's just right for the thing that you want because 
the competition in the real world for our customers who buy our stuff, whether they're banks, hospitals, whatever, um, it's getting very like neck and neck. And these little differentiators help you compete. So we have to enable those solutions for our customer. So you've been thinking quite a bit about markets, uh, production, adoption, but before you even get there, uh, you generated some IP. So how do you see nowadays patents versus publishing, and when do you use which tool for accomplishing what you need? In particular, within labs, mm -hmm. within Hewlett Packard Enterprise, we have a very, I think, nuanced balance between what we publish and what we patent and what we don't do anything mm -hmm. with. I've worked in groups and other companies where the door is shut on everything. You just patent it, keep it quiet. Sometimes they don't even patent it because that means it'll get published in Trade five secrets. years. And no travel is allowed. You're not allowed to present it. So that approach works if it's a very healthy 20-year ecosystem that you're working in. So if you work in the space of memory and developing high bandwidth memory and you're working at a manu manufacturing company who comes up with the next fast high-speed memory, yeah, don't do that because there's literally 10 other companies who are doing it and it keeps the research healthy. There's people in the academia world working on it. There's corporate R&D and there's commercial. In the space of silicon photonics, it's pretty nascent mm -hmm. and we can't afford to do that. So I think about what we do at conferences and what we patent as kind of like keeping enough IP in the world to keep people interested and kind of answer some problems that they don't think they have yet. And then two years later, someone reads your paper and they're like, gosh, now I'm facing the same problem. I'm able to go on. So it's a little bit of enabling your competition because you have to have competition, like we talked about just a minute ago, to keep it healthy. Mm -hmm. If we hoard everything and keep everything inside, yeah, okay, we, we might win, but when my customer says, I need a second supply, what am I going to do? Not sustainable. <laughs> it's not sustainable. No. So yes, we patent obviously the, the, the important stuff, but we do go to uh, conferences. And that's another part that I kind of want to touch on quickly is while we're out there talking and, and, and meeting with other industry people about what we're doing, you're also exciting and attracting talent from the university level who then comes in with a fresh set of eyes, who comes in and says, well, I have no historical knowledge of what we've been doing, so why do we do it like this? Why do we do it like that? And they come up with the next solution of like, well, gosh, why don't we just not do this? Wouldn't life be easier? And those of us who kind of get tunnel vision after some years, don't see that. So you need to do that. If you mm -hmm. don't have a presence, you lose that pipeline. So when you go to these conferences, publish these papers, usually uh, work within uh, constraints of some of the professional organizations. In, in your area, there's OSA, IEEE. Can you share a little bit of your experience? Yeah, so those two organizations in particular do a very, very good job of um, catering good programs, meaning like making sure that the conference content is relevant, it's it's what's happening today. It's not something that was beat to death 20 years ago that somebody's trying to revive. Uh, they do a very good job of staying up to date with where the government is funding research on every topic, of course, but in the particular field of photonics, there are some, there's probably, you know, 100 people who you always see as conference chair, session chair, technical review committee, who kind of intermingle between the two, because mm -hmm. each organization will have its own set of conferences, right? and that, that that's quite nice because you can always more or less be sure that it's going to be good content that'll be worth it to go and living in this area we're very much spoiled because the 
three out of the five biggest conferences are within a drive, right? right? And or if not, they're in Southern California. So it, that that's we're, still we're, driving distance. We, yeah, yeah, maybe impractical, but doable. But it's nice because we're, we're quite spoiled, and there's a huge density of people, and so there's local chapters of each of those organizations too that they'll have photonic societies, just like they do for every other discipline, where they will do individual talks, like once a month or twice a quarter, kind of a thing. Like, hey, I know someone from Facebook, so let's call them, and they can just come talk about what they're working on. That's another great application of getting people to kind of talk to each other, getting competitive companies, people from competitive companies in the same room to maybe do get a little friction, maybe get some disagreements, which would be nice. Yeah. Right? Someone says, all right, I think Vixels are over. You guys are never going to you know, survive two more years and have someone say, I disagree. We have a whole company and strategy behind that. And so that's the kind of competition also that's quite helpful that you also are able to get from these organizations. And again, lastly, student involvement is quite important. What I found, I mean, I still remember when I was in grad school, it wasn't that long ago, I'm quite fresh, right? Seeing talks and technical talks and getting the latest and greatest research, is you don't care about that because you're in that world all day long. People are coming to your university all day long. Mm -hmm. You're able to get a job, <laughs> right? That's really nice. Like to go to the campus of, again, let's use Facebook, and hear someone talk about the thing that they're working on, mm -hmm and be like, oh my God, this is a real human being who's doing what I wish they could do. That's inspiring, it's motivating, it helps you get connections and, and, and feeds the pipeline. That's a very important thing in, in research. You have to have the healthy pipeline because universities have this privilege of working on problems that might never, ever get to the consumer level. Right? There's two axes, there's useful and interesting, mm -hmm. and they can be 100% on the interesting axis, whereas we as companies, with today's market don't have that privilege of just working on gee whiz ideas that might be fun but if you're a professor you have a student yeah go try to do something cool mm -hmm. and nobody's going to tell you why are you working on that it's a waste of time because it's your job so these organizations help gap or uh, bridge that gap between industry and academia so you mentioned about being spoiled uh, we also have two microcosm here we have uh, silicon valley and then we have uh, San Francisco and probably other areas. So you have experiences with all of them. Can you tell our audiences what are the benefits and, and potentially downsides of either? Okay, so I, this is, this is a, I, I feel personally motivated to answer this question. So uh, the benefits are that you're always going to find the right person to do the thing you need them to do. So let's say you want to come up with your startup idea. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get funded. There's venture capitalist companies less than a mile away with millions to go, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly in San Francisco as well. Um, but let's say you need a CFO. Well, there's someone you can find. Let's say you need a mechanical engineer to design a housing for some sensor you're building. Yeah, you can do that. You, so the depth of access to talent is incredible. Here. And breadth. Yeah, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so you're able to find that... Um, for what I consider a cheap rate, because you don't have to physically move someone over mm -hmm. or teleconference them, like you just pay their salary or part of their salary because they're consulting or something like that. There's also a lot of career mobility. Um, it's 95% software in the Silicon Valley, I'll admit that, which allows a lot of fluidity between, you know, the, I think the average retention rate is 18 months, which is nothing, because, well, it's nothing from the hardware world because in software you can do 100 projects in 18 months, one a week essentially. Mm -hmm. But in hardware, you're lucky if you get one run done. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, it's just by nature, it's longer and more expensive. And that points to where VCs are, or, or research by anybody, government, venture capitalism, whatever, is being funded because they want a quick turnaround, right? When I go to someone and say, well, look, we're gonna start this work and maybe in two years we might have an answer and it's gonna cost you 10 million, let's say. Okay, that's one bet you can make. The other one is uh, six weeks and I have a lot more confidence because it's software. Well, you're gonna take the short bet because you wanna move quickly, right? Mm. That's one of the disadvantages of being in this area is that it's become very software dominated. Um, there's a few companies that have the war chest, if you will, to do hardware. Luckily, we're one of them, which is why I'm gainfully employed and happy about it. Um, because you need that, obviously. You have to have the hardware to do the thing that the code runs on. Um, but it, also, because of that um, career mo mobility, um, what I find happening with the, 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 the people my age is that um, it's difficult to gain career uh, traction. Because if you're constantly moving every two years, you're not getting to dig deeper. You're not able to kind of reach into the depths of the project you're working on to understand far-reaching things and lead projects and manage people and understand these higher-level concerns. So I, I see that as a slight drawback, that there's a lot of um, movement. And yes, you get paid 30, 40, 100 grand more. But if all you're doing is coding, and that's what interests you, great. But if you want to get some career seniority, it takes some discipline to stay the course a little bit. A very interesting perspectives. Uh, for closure, uh, I was just curious, uh, your background, you are of Persian origin. Can you That's tell right. us about the, 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 it's very old nation, uh, and what, what is the characteristic? They're very capable in math, science? Well, it depends who you ask, right? If you tell some people, there's the stereotypical things that you, you would hear about. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, at this point, I think, we're pushing 2,600 years as a as a culture that's been around. So there's um, some traction. Or yeah, I can say. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we've been around the block a little bit, and so that's nice. And there's a lot of history, and there's a lot of um, strength in that because we were some of the first people around. So poetry and math and those kind of things are 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 kind of in the wheelhouse of what you would associate with with the Persian culture as far as science and math goes. And we're pretty active in that field, right? And it was, a, it was a real good pleasure for me moving to California from the, from the Midwest because hearing Farsi, the native language, from someone who I didn't know didn't happen until I moved to California, right? Because it was always my family members that spoke Farsi. And so here I can walk down the street or go to Stanford Shopping Center and like you just hear it in the background. It's like normal now, right? Before I'd be like, oh my God, that person's also Persian. Now it's like, I don't even, right? So that's nice. And so that comes, that comes with some cultural familiarity. But the technical presence across Silicon Valley by Iranians is, is quite uh, formidable, if I may say, because some of the higher people at, at VC, some of the people at large companies like Google and Apple mm -hmm. and Facebook are actually of, of Persian descent. Some major professors at Stanford, Caltech, and, and Berkeley, and across other schools in Columbia, for example, are, um, uh, are, 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 are of Iranian descent. Someone in your field of work, uh, Lotfi from Columbia, we talked about who came up with fuzzy logic in the 20s, right? So uh, in, the in the areas of theoretical math, algebra, pure math, applied math, physics, that's kind of where um, are the strengths are. Silicon science. photonics. And I'm trying to add that third as, as the last bit. So hopefully when it's all said and done, someone looks back and says, that guy talked a lot, but he kind of helped make, he make a dent. He did something too. He helped make a dent, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank very you, interesting. absolutely.